Customer announcement. Sound quality may not be as it usually is on this podcast. We don't know why, but I expect it's Richard's fault. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm not twiddling with anything. I'm sat here quietly, winding my own business. Still, still, I get the blame. I've switched my phone off. Yes, it's Richard's fault. Okay. This is a special. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Farmer Phil. And I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And this week, those boys are having no input at all because it's a Heather special. It's a touring special. Actually, Farmer Phil, you're in it too because you and I went to City Farmer. We did. And we learned to always expect the unexpected. We did. While we were there, a band appeared and played the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) There we are. Yes, in fact, a string quartet appeared and played the Beatles. Just as we were looking at ladybirds, which of course are Beatles. Ladybugs, aren't they called? Yes, they're called ladybugs Mm. over there. And you did see, did you not, a few weeks ago, the James May and Oz tour of wineries that went to Benziger. We did, and also you brought a few bottles back from Benziger, and very good they were too. And that's a biodynamic winery in the Sonoma Valley. Oh, okay. So that's where you bought your couple of bottles of wine from? Yes. Ah, fantastic. And they make nice wine. I mean, they said, when I remember James May was tasting a bit, and he said, oh, it's very good, but he was disappointed by how much it cost. It was expensive, but the thing is, Rich, you get what you pay for. You do. And he wants a bottle of wine at £6. Right. And I want that too, but this wasn't. Okay. But I really, really enjoyed it. And if Podchef is listening, it was an extraordinary amount of money, Podchef. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I actually smuggled them into Canada and back out of Canada into America because I didn't realise that you couldn't do that. Right. To get them to Podchef, who was in America. Right. So I hope he has quaffed them and enjoyed them suitably. And then we go on from there to City Farmer and on from there to Geek Farm Life. And that's Andrew and Misty in Indiana who are busy on preserving and canning and milking their goat. Their goat was fantastic, Rich. It just automatically came out of the goat pen, got up on the milking machine and they they milked it. Fantastic. It wasn't actually a machine, it was just a... Do you like goat's milk? No. I think it's gorgeous. Do you? Mm. There's a few things I like in life, as you know. I don't like melon... And the other thing is goat's cheese. I find quite difficult That's if it's gorgeous. strong. It smells like the goat. It does <laughs> smell like the goat, and I'm not keen on the smell of goats either. Does that little fact feature in the ten things that we didn't know about Heather or not? Don't know. But they're in the next catalogue, which you are going to love. Let's have a Monty fact on farming that has a little American bent in it. Monty cast. A weekly fact on farming. The first cow arrived in America in 1611. Another Monty cast, a weekly fact on farming, next week. Thanks, Monty. Off we go on Heather's tour of America. Here we are at Benziger. Biodynamics is an agricultural method or philosophy that started in 1924 by an Austrian scientist named Rudolf Steiner. He was a scientist, a philosopher, and also an educator, the Waldorf school system, for instance, same Rudolf Steiner. It's the oldest form of non-chemical farming going on. It predates organic farming by more than 20 years. Uh, actually goes way beyond organic farming, too. It's a lot more stringent, but certainly a lot more to it. 
In the meantime, we're not using any pesticides, herbicides, chemical, or artificial fertilizers here on the ranch. Haven't now for over 13 years. And as you can imagine, there's the occasional challenge associated with this, to say the least, don't you? Yeah. You look at Sonoma Mountain up above us there. Now that looks pretty healthy, and it well, sure was last time I was hiking around up there. Nobody's getting up in the morning, of course, farming that land. Our nature has struck a balance of things there. And it, well, seems to work out pretty well. Down here, we've kind of tipped that balance with all these great vines. How to keep the soils vital and rich and the vines healthy and strong. How to control diseases and pests are just some of the things we've got to do. And one of the first things the family's done about all this, right here behind me, I call it the bug farm. We have three of these on the property, actually. And for that matter, the plantings you see everywhere, along the walkways, the driveways, the fruit trees, the garden areas, the olive trees, over 700 olive trees on the ranch now. It's all with this in mind. Research has shown us just what we need to have planted here to attract those beneficial insects that we want back into the vineyard. They help us with things like uh, pollination, also natural predators for certain of our pests. We're using these guys instead of the pesticides. Now, for every acre of the grapevines that you see around us are produced every year, somewhere between two and eight tons of grapes. That's the range, roughly, depending on the type of grape where it's planted. It's a pretty good drain on the soil. We're not using the chemical fertilizers. So, most everything here is composted. Landscape uh, trimmings, the trimmings from the vines themselves, of course, and also the leftovers from the winemaking process and the seeds and the stems and the leaves and so on, composted and then work back into the soil. The philosophy goes beyond just the farming methods too. It uh, well, it gives guidelines for re-establishing the balance of things and making the ecosystem here sustainable. Among other things, bird boxes around the property, they're everywhere. The little, uh, little ones for our western bluebirds are great caterpillar and grub eaters, for instance. And then the larger ones are for things like uh, owls and hawks and kestrel falcons and so on. They help control the rodent population, first of all. Turns out gophers are kind of like grapevine roots. But they also help control and scare away the flocks of fruit-eating birds. They can really do damage to a ripe crop. We recycle all the water used in production, too. The ponds and wetlands are planted accordingly to add to the biodiversity. And then we get to use the water for irrigation. Water is quite a precious commodity in these parts. We also actually plant cover crops between the rows of the vines every year, just after the harvest. We can't rotate the grapevines. Sort of a permanent fixture that hopefully will be good for a few decades at least, you know, 40, 50, 60 years or more maybe. We, we can rotate what goes between them though. And the cover crops serve three purposes for us. Erosion control, first of all, during the rainy season. Now here, that's really just the winter months. We also use them to amend the soils along with the compost. We'll plant different things just depending on what the soils need. Uh, sometimes it might be more of the legumes, other times just certain grasses. Certain clovers are very important, sometimes mustards even whatever the soils are in need of. And then the plantings also provide cover and habitat for these good bugs. The beneficial insects propagate, work their way back into the vineyards and take care of things. Another, I guess, benefit of our practices is that the natural yeast, the wild yeast that exists in nature are flourishing here on this ranch. It could help the environment. Yeast is important during the fermentation process. Whenever we can ferment on the natural yeast, well, the wines are gonna be more flavorful and also more unique to this particular operation. So biodynamics, well, it's like the highest form of organic farming going on. It goes beyond just the elimination of all chemicals, though, and it's certainly the most healing form of agriculture going. A big difference are the nine different biodynamic preparations that are made and applied here on the property during the course of the year. Well, sort of like the homeopathic remedies we might take ourselves. Uh, here, they're making concoctions from everything from stinging nettle to yarrow and valerian. There's the uh, dandelion and chamomile teas, also the horn preparations, the silica sprays for instance are sprayed onto the vines themselves to focus sunlight and increase photosynthesis. 
the hummus, the manure teas, sprayed into the soil to stimulate microbial activity and then root growth. The other preparations are actually sprayed onto the compost heap. When that's spread then, they can be absorbed by the roots of the vines and they'll act as a stimulant to the immune system or actually as remedies for certain things. So really, we're incorporating the environment and all the natural influences on the grapevines. And what this does is help produce grapes that really reflect the place they're being grown, the soils, the conditions, and the environment. Gives them a special sense of place or authenticity that the family's looking for. What about the yield? Does the yield go down because you're... No, just the opposite. No, much healthier and better. The roots are growing way deeper. You look at a cross-section of grapes grown with the... Uh, where is those gardeners? You know, oh, here. See? With the, the chemicals, the roots go down a couple feet just where the chemicals are. With this, the soils are, are light and airy and, and healthy all the way down. The roots go down 20 feet or more. Yeah, it's just it's no comparison. Yeah. Now I'm at City Farmer. Well, I'm very pleased to be in the Vancouver City Farmer. Thank you. Can you give me the website, Mike? www.cityfarmer.com and I'm with Marie and Sharon too. Thank you very much for welcoming us along. And I must say that if any of you hear any background sounds, that's Monty. Hello. And Farmer Phil on tour. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Tell us a little bit about the history of the city farmer. We're 30 years old, coming up in January. We teach urban agriculture. We teach environmentalism in the city and you're standing in our demonstration garden in Vancouver, which is an organic garden of 25 years. And Sharon's head gardener, Maria, is entomologist, and we do lots of good things here. And you've got a compost hotline. It's the regional compost hotline, serves over 2 million people, and uh, we answer about 5,000 calls a year on every subject imaginable to do with compost. Mm, I bet you've been asked a million times, what do I do with my worms when I go on holiday? (laughs) I always say um, probably get a friend interested in them and, you know, a little bit of scraps from there and then they are kind of, oh, worms aren't so bad. And then next thing you know, you've got somebody else splitting your worms up. Fantastic. (laughs) Now, Sharon, the garden, it isn't what I would call ultra tidy. No. It's not a magazine-type garden. It's the kind of garden that's doable by anybody. And you'll notice we have a lot of flowers and herbs mixed in with the vegetables, which a lot of people are surprised about. But this brings in the beneficial insects into the garden because we have a pesticide ban in Vancouver. And also it makes the garden more beautiful and more attractive because we don't believe that vegetables are ugly and have to be segregated from the rest of the yard. I love it. I love the fact you've got the vegetables in amongst the marigolds. Marigolds are really good, aren't they, I think, oh, yeah, to, yeah. to keep off um, certain pests and bugs. Yeah, and they're, they're short and they light, have a long season and they're nice bright colour and uh, go well with the, the coloured chard and the peppers and anything else you want to put them with. Takes yeah. me back to years ago when my Uncle Bill, he was a very, very keen chrysanthemum grower and a very, mm. very keen vegetable grower. And he had his vegetables in very regimented rows, mm-hmm. but at each end he would have a whole row of marigolds. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's there for a purpose, really. Something from my childhood that I remember very clearly. And what about bugs and the pests in the garden? Well, then, I guess that's where I come in. <laughs> And even though we all love marigolds, marigolds are that overrated sort of plant. There are so many different plants that offer so many things. 
and one of my favorites is actually the fennel that's over there that is a bit of a monster and uh, I call it the ladybug condominium and it's one of my showcases for darling, the darling, garden ladybug is that a ladybird in our language, I believe? <laughs> it's got red in spots. Yeah. A ladybug over here, a ladybird over our way. But there's like, you know, ladybug, like people, you know, if they are releasing ladybugs or they're trying to attract ladybugs, people are always fixated on the beetle and ladybirds. <laughs> and, you know, I try to show people that insects, you know, they do have whole life cycle different stages look for the little yellow clusters of eggs ladybug larva has been my biggest mission to people to show people what a ladybug larva looks like it's describe like, it um it's kind of like a little tiny alligator i'd say with sort of orange spots um not anything you'd see like a ladybug wow an orchestra has just arrived <laughs> Maybe they can get on your Beneficial, <laughs> we get beneficial musicians yes. too coming to our garden fantastic <laughs> Oh, go no. ahead. No, are you not going to play for us you then? You have to play. Can we have a little tune? She's visiting from England and she's wow. making a podcast. This is the fun of the garden. It was all over England. We attract many different things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hi. Hello, England. <laughs> Actually, it's the world. You're going oh, out on the right. Wiggly podcast, so just oh, introduce that. yourselves. Hi, I'm Gavin. I'm Joshua. I'm Derek. We're the Regal Trio. Oh, the wow. Regal Trio. Yeah. That's why we have these. Wow. Are these guys? <laughs> okay. Thanks. This is her book. She's just shown us. She's with the Regal himself. Oh, ah. She's a famous guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say hi to Chuck for me. No problem. <laughs> Charles to you. <laughs> Sorry, even with the tie. Beatles. And we're talking can, can about ladybirds. Can I ask you what you're doing here, Heather? I am. I'm going to blog you for a sec, if it's possible. Well, uh, unbelievably, I am making a podcast for the Wiggly Wigglers podcast when we were talking about ladybirds, which are beetles, when a bunch of musicians arrived and played a Beatles tune on a double bass. And what was the name of the group? <laughs> they were called the Regal Tree. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, something we happen to yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> so, going back to ladybirds, beetles, bugs, <laughs> and hopefully not another band of musicians will come, although that was wonderful. Let's just start talking uh, about lottery tickets. Yes, <laughs> Maybe we'll yes. get the winning numbers. I think I've got a lottery ticket on me, Marie. <laughs> okay. Go on, fennel. So, fennel, um, I've used it as... A very great teaching tool. You can show people at any given time of the summer, ladybug eggs, ladybug larvae, and the adult. It turns into almost a 10-foot tree, this thing. We have to cut the heads off because of the seeds, but it's just such a fabulous tool. And having the garden as a backdrop 
and showing people, you know, the exact size of what they're looking at. Because people don't see bugs. They just, you know, they, they can't relate to the size factor. And when you can kind of just flip a few leaves and show them exactly what they're looking for, what to look out for, what they can do instead of, or, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, the predators, and how the relationships work, it's a great tool to have. A garden is just, you know, fabulous. There's like a whole macro world going on in people's backyards. They just have to kind of open their eyes to that. Do people come just drop in and ask you these questions or <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, know we do get the people all the time. This garden is pretty magical in so many ways because there's always something that draws people in just like the cob tool shed that we have people just love the look out of it they come in we sort of use it as bait and we start to kind of get our fishing rods out and then we start to talk to them oh well what are you doing here and there's so many things to focus on and every you know couple of weeks there's a new project going on whether it's the cold frames from a recycled skylight that we've gotten or the rain barrels or just you know composting keeping a worm bin one little thing brought them in but then we can kind of open up their world to all these other little projects that we've worked on that that cob house then is that made of mud cob yes it's got a green roof which is another great little kind of tie-in when people are interested in with green roofs it's a cob structure is made out of um, straw clay sand and water and it's mashed up and it's kind of built in layers let to dry and built the next layer up it was all done by hand by hundreds of volunteers in our back laneway here and you know all the um, extras that have been added in is just like those artistic touches that you know people just love it it's so now i'm i've got a hit for this worm corner but you mentioned yes. didn't you that there's been a pesticide ban in vancouver mm-hmm. however has that happened and what does that mean um i think it's um a response from the residents who you know see that there are pesticides being used probably not correctly and even though there's a lot of education that goes into using pesticides to some degree um is it really necessary and i think there's a lot of people who would be more oh i would never use that and thing and i think the city as years have gone on has really opened its eyes to listening to its residents and has really kind of had a lot of programs being developed to educate the public plus there's you know a whole whole commercial aspect of organics that is really taking off and they are educating you know through selling products that are you know a little more earth friendly more green Um, we call it the, you know the gore effect this past year all of our programs have been so busy over and above on waiting lists and, and things and it's just you know now we've got to catch up with the demand so more and more people especially like for Vancouver being such a highly populated place people don't have backyards to compost in and they've come from wherever and they're used to composting but what do they do oh maybe they consider using a worm bin and that's one of the biggest things that we teach here is how to compost your you know your little veggie and fruit scraps into making it a nice plant fertilizer a living fertilizer a plant will, will never be the same is what i like to say and it's fabulous because you can take charge of your own waste let's go by these noisy farmers <laughs> to oh yeah come on to have a look at worm corner this is a little bit of a site that's kind of under construction you know it's getting a little more sun here so pretty much we've kept worms in there but now we've sort of moved to keeping them into the cob shed oh i see so 
bit more shelter. A bit more shelter, cooler little okay, place. going in. And sort of stacked a little bit here. We've only got two that are active right here right now. I've got another, actually the worm uh, stackable one that you guys have. Counterworms? Pretty much, yeah. So this one, it pretty much works like a box. You've got the aeration holes on the side. You've got the drainage holes on the bottom. It sits in a tray, it's got a lid, and you know, you just get a half a pound of red wigglers and you start to feed them. So, you know, it's not rocket science, but people really, if they're not used to keeping worms, a living organism in a weird little box, and you know, we kind of talk them through it. We do a one hour workshop where everybody comes up to speed to how to set up the bin, how to maintain the bin, and then our compost hotline, which is, we're here to answer questions and people will call us and if they've got, you know, anything that they need to be troubleshooting, talk them through what's going on what they're seeing um, and try to help them out. So, Where would they normally buy a worm bin from? Would they come to you or are they in the garden centres? Well, they can do it commercially, but we're in a very privileged um, spot being in Vancouver. The residents have, you know, voiced their wants to the city and so the city of Vancouver does subsidise our worm bin programs. They're doing a little bit of advertising. They're getting, they're getting a lot more media play. People are talking about it more, like keeping worms. Oh, that's kind of neat. So it's kind of cool, actually. Like, and people get right into it. They start telling their friends and so on and so on and so on. So it's, it's definitely growing. Thank you, Marie. Here I am at Geek Farm Life. Well, I'm in Misty and Andrew's barn. I feel completely honoured. <laughs> Well, we feel honored that you came back. <laughs> We're up on the deck, and it's an old barn, you it's, said? Yeah, it's built in the uh, 1880s time frame by uh, Amish workers. Or... Isn't it 1870s? Isn't that what the cornerstone in the house says? Uh-huh. I can't remember. It's yeah. that time frame. And we're up in the hayloft. No, normally this would be full of hay. This, this, side, this side would be full of straw. Yeah. The other side would be full of hay. Fantastic. <laughs> Instead, we have alfalfa pellets up there. They take up a lot less room than hay. And what are you feeding those to? The goats. Okay. You can feed it instead of hay. And that noise, obviously, is the goats. And we've got the turkeys. Tell us why the turkeys are inside all the time. Well, the turkeys fly. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem with turkeys. You put them outside, they'll fly. You should Did you not clip them? Story. You can't clip them, yeah. but it's a pain. Yeah. They have big talons, and they don't really like to be picked up. Yeah. And then if you clip them, they run out on the road to investigate whatever car is coming by. Yeah. We did have that one time where they stopped the car, and um, the car stopped and was honking, and then the turkeys were hopping up on the hood and gobbling back every single time the car honked. It's pretty funny. They're more curious than smart, so that's one of the problems with having them outside. So any shiny bits? We do have... They'll go and attack. We do have the turkeys outside from this year because we have been more diligent about keeping them clipped. Yeah. Yeah, and they're used to running with the ducks, so they actually kind of stay with, stay with the duck flock. Fantastic. Now, you've given me some wool, Misty. Tell me about that. Well, I have Corydale sheep. Okay. It's a common American breed. Yeah. Bred in the early 1900s, I think, for wool and meat. Yeah, yeah. I think that they have them in... I think it was actually developed in Australia, so I'm pretty sure you have them in the UK as well. Okay. They have a nice medium to fine wool. It's not fine like merino or cashmere, but it's pretty good. And so I gave you some wool that I had spun. One of them is natural, one of them is dyed with indigo, and the other one is dyed with Brazil wood. So hopefully you'll be able to find somebody to knit those. We're going to knit it up and bring (laughs) the product back to the Wiggly Show. That sound of purring is not Noah, as usual. Who is this cat? His name is Milk Jug. He's our new barn cat. He's sneezy, too. He's climbing on everybody. (laughs) Cool. 
Now, your pigs, you mentioned to me that you've got a commercial breed. Tell us about that. Well, we decided, actually, I think three years ago now, I decided that I wanted pork. We had bought a split side of beef the year before, and we enjoyed that, but I decided that I wanted pork, and we had room, so why not raise it ourselves? I knew I did not want to breed pigs, because that takes a lot of work. You have to have a nursery for the piglets, and then the sows get really big, and you have to have room so for the sows. You have an 800-pound sow around, which yeah. that's, eats and a, a lot of food. And a 1,000-pound yeah. boar, and you have to have air conditioning almost always because they get so big they can't really move around a lot. So what we do instead is we buy what are called wiener pigs or feeder pigs that are about 40 pounds. We yeah. buy those from a local farmer. We bring them home in a dog crate, and then we raise them for five or six months and then send them off to be butchered. Uh, we can't really find... There's nobody local to us who raises heritage or rare breed pigs. It's yeah. not a priority and, in this area, basically. Right. Yeah. And as such, we have to drive hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense to do that. We can buy it from a local small farmer yeah. who's got readily available pigs anytime we want. And the heritage breed pigs we, we could drive and buy are booked eight months in advance. And you said, Andrew, that if you did grow pastured pig around here, there wouldn't be a market. Right. Most people around here are looking for the cheapest thing they can buy. And as such, that's the traditional, you know, raised on elevated floor indoor hog, yeah. Yeah. which you can pick up for a couple bucks a pound. But pastured pigs can be sold in California for about three to four times that much. This is not a very affluent area. So things like organic food and high-quality pork and things like that don't really come into it a lot for most people. Yeah, the same with honey. Yeah. Um, if we are, you know, if we go to certain larger cities, uh, if you have natural honey, you know, raised without any chemicals and so forth, you can sell it for some decent money. Yeah. You know, $10, $10 a pound type of range. Around here, people expect to pay more, like, what, two fifty a pound? Or? Yeah, basically they want to buy a quart of honey yeah. for five bucks at most. Do you think that when people around here think of the product that they're buying, that they imagine the intensive farming, do they know that that's what it's coming from? So when they buy their beef, have they got in their mind the feedlot? Or is it just that they like to uh, wash over those issues and imagine this pastured, beautiful well, beast grazing in with, acres? With the beef, they want feedlot beef. Okay. They've been told that corn-fed beef has the highest amount of marbling. Uh-huh. And they means want fat. That. And they, they want it because it's tender. You can overcook it and it's still tender, right? Cause you yeah. Just, you're full of fat. Or, On the pigs, they don't. I don't think they even know there's an alternative. Yeah. Okay. The other or extreme, care. Well, the yeah. other extreme with the beef, um, there are a lot of people around here who buy beef by the side, and a lot of times they, the people that are buying it in bulk like that, they do know what's going on. And actually, if you buy it that way around here, you have a higher chance of it not coming from a feedlot. Yeah, if you want to go to a local butcher as opposed to Walmart or something yeah. like that, you can buy reasonably priced beef. That, yeah. Tell me your attitude to downshifting, because there would be people who perhaps were listening who thought that your idea was to have this idealistic, restful, self-sufficient type lifestyle, living in an idyllic way. I don't think that we set out to do downshifting as far as what I think when I hear the word downshifting, because what I think is moving to the country and not doing much and just sitting on the porch reading a book. And I think we did not set out to do that, and we didn't really set out to be farmers. We just had it in our mind that it would be nice to have a house, which we would not have been able to do where we were living before. 
houses were like a million dollars. What did you live? Did you live in an apartment before? We did. We lived yeah. in a really small apartment, like what nine hundred square feet or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was our old goal, was just to get out, you know, and have a few animals. But the problem, and one of the reasons we do the podcast, maybe, is that we hear a lot of people downshifting, and they seem to want to just get away and quit their day job and live the rural life. But the problem is, to, real, to live the rural life, you have to be happy and enjoy what you're doing. And it takes, for us anyways, it takes a certain amount of income to make life comfortable. Yeah, we, we want to heat the house in the wintertime. Um, you can do that by cutting wood and so forth, but we don't, we don't have any woods to cut, and that's a lot of work cutting all the, all the trees that you're going to need to heat your house and drying it for a year and all that sort of stuff. We can sell our skills for relatively easy jobs with great income and live good lives. Yeah. I don't think it's selling out. No. I think it's living a comfortable, happy life. It's really can... difficult to do this full-time and come out with any money at all. We put money into everything that we do, farming-wise, costs us money. Yeah. But it's just a matter of whether we want to spend the money here, whether we want to spend it at the grocery store. We have to eat, and if, if something doesn't turn out here, then we will go buy groceries. If we lose our tomato crop... The store sells tomatoes, so we're not stuck. And we're not purists in that way, that we're not going to set ourselves up to such a high standard. We're not out to prove anything. I think some people that are downshifting are out to prove something or to prove what a good environmentalist they are. You were telling me about what you felt a lot of environmentalists were missing. I feel like uh, a lot of environmentalists have the attitude that farmers are helping to cause the problem instead of parts of the solution. Because when I listen to advice from green people, quote-unquote, <laughs> I, hear, I hear a lot of stuff about... The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hear a lot of stuff about, you need to live in this city, you need to stop urban sprawl, you need to take public transportation or ride a bicycle to work and things like that. And I don't hear anybody talking about in a positive way people who live in rural environments I feel like the attitude is that if you live in a rural environment then you drive a truck and you're probably contributing to the problem instead of helping to solve it but I think that that's missing some of the data because we are doing things to help the environment. Go on. Well, people that do sustainable farming instead of just corn all the time are putting things back into the environment. If you grow beans, you're putting nitrogen back into the environment. If you have pigs on the ground, they're definitely adding lots of nutrients to the environment. And the overall, I'm um, not using as much stuff. I think that's a good thing. I think that we end up not having to support as much transporting of vegetables around and transporting of meat around because we're doing some of our own stuff. And it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> and I think that's, I think environmentalists need to figure out how to have fun with it too. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> I think that everybody needs to be positive. Instead of talking about all the things that we need to cut back on and all the things that we need to stop doing, why don't we start focusing on things that we need to start doing and things that'll be fun to do. And, and so what you're saying is really that the balance and the diversity in your animals, in your community, the way that you're connecting, is bringing value to your own life. Yes. That's the point. Exactly. Except now when the cat has scratched at you. Oh, he's actually biting into my hand. Oh, <laughs> and, and uh, the bucket... <laughs> against the door down there. Yeah, a 300-pound goat <laughs> slamming himself against the door trying to get out. It's because of his skur. I've caught him scratching his skur a couple times on the side of the barn, His too. skur? They're usually disbudded. Yeah. They have their horn 
bones taken off. Sometimes if it's not done properly, they can kind of grow back and uh-huh. then they fall off and then they grow back and that's what happens to him and it really itches. Got ya. Well, we'll go and have a look at him, but I thank you very much well, for having you. me. Yes, thank you. Thank you for coming by. No problem. That was, that was great. This was a great, really fun. Great. Okay. Good. start. Now we should do an interview of you. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to subscribe, go to iTunes. If you'd like to pop a review up, we would be tickled pink as long as you put something good. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. Hope you enjoy next week's show, which will be an absolute corker. Bye. Bye from me. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> e minor, yeah. That's E minor.